we were very thrilled at uh, Christmas time to have raised, I think, over $55,000 to, uh, to get two sprinter vans so they could haul off food and supplies to people that are in the war zones. And so uh, Chad's got a few good things to say to us, and Zach's going to ask some questions. So take it away, guys. Yeah, so as Gary just shared, we were able to put together some funds, and you and Tatiana just returned from joining Mary in Ukraine and beginning to put those funds to use. Tell us about uh, what happened on your trip. What did you do? I would say I, I drew on my um, experience being part of the missions committee to know approximately how much the, the church would raise. So uh, we had already beforehand uh, looked into getting a, a sprinter van, uh, and so when when Tatiana and I arrived to join Mary, we already had one van that was purchased to be able to, to use it to bring it to the different areas. But actually, I didn't mention it to you before. In addition to that, just at the beginning of, of winter, because we knew the church was um, going to be raising funds, we did purchase uh, 15 stoves for um, a variety of different people. Uh, there was, I think, five different families that had fled from the war zone. And then there was uh, an additional five families that had um, um, five plus kids in their family. Mm. Uh, in, in addition to that, another five um, families that were looking after disabled children. And so because of the attacks on the, uh, the infrastructure and having a lack of electricity, heat is a pretty large component during the winter time. So we supplied them with stoves and also a, um, a winter's supply of, of uh, wood. So... Uh, yeah, so on our trip, uh, we, we took the vehicle. There was three different places that we had gone to. Uh, one, we wanted to bring, again, encouragement to the partners who have stayed in day in and day out uh, under regular rocket attacks to be able to serve people. That's also my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. We've been working with them for about 19 years. And so uh, we, we went there, stayed with them over the, uh, the Christmas time. Uh, which is Ukrainian Christmas, uh, which some celebrate on the, the 25th, some celebrate on the 7th of January. And so we were there to uh, also help encourage those who are in the church on that day to bring some level of comfort to them. Uh, going further than that, um, we, we went pretty close to where the hottest um, zone would be in Bakhmut. It's about 10 kilometers from where the fiercest fighting is. And, uh, man, I'm just thinking about the, the timing for, for you guys from um, Teen Challenge being here. That, that community that we are in, there was only about 20 um, church members left, but the people who stayed, the pastor who stayed, he's a former drug addict, and the people that were also helping in that area are former rehabilitants as well. And the amount of work that they are doing in that community under a constant bombardment is just unbelievable. So I don't think it's uh, any... Um, there, there's a pretty big reason that you are here today even just to hear that. Just incredible work that God's doing through, through them. And so we went to uh, a community and, and again, we, we try our best not to just drop off food and go, but we want to share with them the reason that we're, we're there. And so I think the first place that we went to, there was about 70 people that we were able to, to distribute food to. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's hard to, to give you like uh, context to it, but it's like it's regular artillery all day, like every hour um, while we're there. It's like you just hear it going all the time. Uh, and so people are living under that constant, constant pressure. And uh, um, 
Following that trip, we, we went into a deoccupied zone, so it took another day to get to a deoccupied area where people had been under Russian occupation for, for nine months. And uh, we went into a, um, a small community. We couldn't quite get there because all the, the bridges were blown. So uh, there was these pontoon bridges that the military made that we were able to cross over. Uh, and we were able to get there at that time. Uh, that was a little bit harder. Uh, I would say for Tatiana, uh, because we, we didn't quite have enough packages for the amount of food, uh, people that were there. Usually when we go, we have an idea of the amount of people because our partners are um, assessing that beforehand, but this was an area that nobody had been able to get to uh, yet, and so we didn't know exactly how much. So mm -hmm. it's harder in one side. It's, it's really encouraging to be able to, to bring food, uh, but on the other side, it uh, um, can be quite heart-wrenching, and it was for, for specifically Tatiana to um, not be able to have the amount of food for, for everyone. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time that Tatiana joined you uh, and Mary in uh, the actual distribution runs, going to these areas. Talk to us about what that means to you as a family. That was a, I would say that took a while to build to that level. Um, I would say for like, when you look at yourself, it's one thing to put yourself in those positions and in that danger, and then it's another thing to bring your child into that. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> you'll see her up here again you can point her out then uh but to 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 have your child be a part of it now she she had been a, a huge um part of of helping the refugees that were coming into our home uh she was receiving a lot of phone calls from people at the beginning of the war uh, seeking refuge, seeking a place to stay. And so uh, she, she also did a lot of like uh, administrative things that she learned to do. Um, but to, to bring her to those areas, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a whole other level for us. So coming back here and, and uh, every, like we're all safe, it's a lot easier to say, yeah, we were glad we made that decision so she could see it firsthand and be able to see firsthand the people that still struggle um, there and how you can go about uh, providing for them. So, yeah, we're good with it, but it's also like we're safe. So <laughs> I can say that's a little bit, yeah, our decision, that was a great decision. Yeah, yeah. and you say um, still when you talk about the, the struggle of the people of Ukraine. We are approaching one year of war. What is the life like for a civilian in Ukraine one year into a war? Yeah, to, that might be a whole <laughs> talk in itself, but to summarize it, you still have about 20% of the country that's under Russian occupation. And so I can't tell you what things are like for them. I can only tell you from those who have been under occupation. And it's not, um, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty bleak situation for people. Then you have those who are living near the front lines that are constantly, like I was just mentioning you about, it's the constant bombardment. Uh, it's the, yeah, the constant attacks and the stress that that's under. Uh, then you have those who are, uh, who have fled. So there's about five to six million just registered uh, internally displaced people. So that's people who are either lost their homes or in, uh, living in different camps or buildings just within the country itself. And the country was only 41 million to begin with. Then you've got those who are in other parts of the country that have not had to fled, flee, but 
you get the continued rocket attacks all the time. It, to have that constant pressure of uh, knowing that you're never fully safe. Even when you go over like two, three months, and that was similar for us when we were in Kyiv um, in October, it had not been attacked for like two months. And then all of a sudden, rockets are raining down, Shahid drones are, are coming in and, and bombing the city right where you were walking the, the day before. So you have this constant uh, in the back of your mind that you're not always truly safe. And then you've got the remaining part of the country that are trying to help those who have been displaced. And it's a huge weight. I mean, the country was struggling before uh, by itself, but it's the, the weight of time and, and the pressure on, on people. And uh, even amongst that, you have 8 million refugees who left the country. And that's only registered as well, too. And that's not an easy thing for people. I know there's a lot here who are around, in and around Chilliwack, but that's, that's people who are retirement age who thought they were going to be retiring in the place that they knew and they grew up in, and now they're in a foreign country trying to learn another language at their age, trying to learn another way of life. Um, it's, it's extremely difficult. So what's life for, like, civilians? It's, it's almost immeasurable, the amount of pain and suffering that, that people continue to go to, whether it's inside or outside the country. And you, you shared a story about a church that you were connected to and um, the way that the bombardments were impacting one of their services. Sure. Our, our brother and sister-in-law, uh, who I mentioned before, we had, they're a primary partner. We've been working with them for so long. We had, we had gone a few times, and Tatiana and I were, were there to be with them. But this, like I had mentioned, they, they receive about 20 to 120 uh, artillery or mortar attacks like each and every day but you you kind of get us uh, because nothing had happened to them you kind of get into a a sense of like a okay everything's fine and everything's okay until it was i think uh, three or two or three weeks ago they were in a service just like this with 150 people and my brother-in-law is just uh, is preaching and uh, the sirens never went off and uh, all of a sudden, rockets start to rain down quite close to the church, and people are running and panicking. And so when you see that, right, like just like here, it's, it's online, and, and when you see it, it becomes that much more real again, that you're, you're within a few degrees of like them not being there anymore, and all those people being taken out. And so it's, it's very, very unnerving. Um, yeah, it's very unnerving to, to constantly be living underneath that. I mean, even our other brother-in-law and sister-in-law, who we work with as well, it was 150 meters from them is where a rocket hit earlier on in the war, too. So it's a constant. Now the, the depth of what you're sharing is, is more than I think any of us have words for in terms of the, the scope, the amount of people who are affected, how deeply they are affected, uh, and also, as, as we put ourselves in your shoes, how deeply personal it is for you. This has been day in and day out for you for nearly a year. Your wife is in Ukraine now, your brother and sister-in-law, extended family, dear friends, and every day it doesn't stop. And you're still working. You're still, you're still doing what you can. You're still loving your family. When I've had conversations with you, you've been extremely present. How are you getting through? What, what, what gives you your strength, Chad? Because it, it, it defies any, any common sense.
is excruciating. But I was thinking about this uh, question, how do, you, how do you persevere? And I don't think it's, um, it's one that started a long, long time ago. Uh, when you just making the choice to follow Jesus and having your foundation built on him, that rock. So when the fire and the flood and the difficulties came, which it did, um, I, I would say that that, that helped us perf- persevere the one that we put our foundation and our trust in each and every day and and so I don't think it was just an immediate I think it was something that uh, that God has been building upon so that we would have the ability to persevere and he says he will not leave you or forsake you so do you believe it or you don't believe that Um, I believe it I mean, there's joy in the, through the pain, but it's excruciating. Um, your heart and your mind are, are there, um, but you're, you're here. So we, we just do what we can. Um, this, this Christian life that we have chose to, to live was not guaranteed that it's going to be all, all roses, and, and I'm okay with that. Um, I'm just glad that we were and continue to be in a, in a position to, to help uh, because uh, as much as it's not in the news anymore and uh, it, it, the war continues to rage and com- people are continually being affected and lives are being continually affected. So for us to be able to respond like that, I'm grateful for that. And to, to take it like a step further um, with... Being able to persevere during this time, this is where it's not just us alone and and God. He uses different people. And and I want to say to this church, I didn't get a chance necessarily to do it before, but just to be how how thankful we were to to see um, even the photos of of people coming together and praying for us, even if you weren't coming at the the church, but even the notes that we were receiving. God used you, this church, and continues to. And that's... Even with this Christmas project, it, it was um, such, a huge, uh, such a huge encouragement for us to be able to keep going. So as yes, as much as we have God as our foundation to help us through the trials, God also uses God's people to help you through those trials. And I, I'm, so grateful for this church. And we are grateful for you. And we are grateful for, for Jesus' faithfulness, that those words that you shared from Scripture, those are not empty promises. Those are not empty promises. And each one of us who steps out in faith steps out believing that those are not empty promises. And we have moments that we find out that they are not empty promises. Thank you, Chad, for sharing about your finding out. Yeah, thanks, everyone. I want to do a recap a little bit from the last couple sermons to give us into context, because uh, the thing when you're re- go- preaching from a book, you kind of got to, there's a reason Paul wrote the way he wrote and what he said and when he said it, so we've got to be reminded of this. 
And so last week, the basic premise is our world is full of religions, of regulations and rules. Went through some of those various religions and sects within Christianity. And Paul says they're destined to perish. The point is, put them in that green recycling compost bin. That's where they belong. All these religious rules and regulations, they're perishable. They are not the answer to true, deep, life-changing spiritual life. Don't believe these silly things. They show their relevance, Paul says, for true holiness by dealing with physical things only. They're concerned about what you eat and what you don't eat, where you go, what celebrations you attend, what day is the holy day. And he says this is misleading, it's false, it's perishing. Do not go after this type of religion. Because it's all about the heart and the mind, which we'll get to today. Set your heart, set your mind on Christ, who will never leave you or forsake you. We looked at Matthew chapter 15 last week, where Jesus said to the Pharisees, Don't you understand? Come on, guys, what goes into the mouth, that's not what defiles you or makes you unclean, contaminates you. But it's what comes out of your mouth. That's what defiles you. Are you still so dull? Quit believing silly things, people. Are you still so dependent on human wisdom? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth just goes through the stomach and out again? But it's the things that come out of the mouth. They come from the heart. They come from the mind. And this is what will defile you. These are the sinful things. And then he lists. Out of this heart, out of this mind will come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. This is what defiles you and contaminates you. So we will see in Galatians, or in Colossians chapter 3, Paul echoes these very words, these very words of Jesus. They're on the same page, Paul and Jesus. They're not two separate theologians. You can't like one and not the other. They go go together, these two guys, okay? In fact, Jesus appointed Paul to do this work, and Paul struggles, it says. He worked with all the energy Jesus could give him to bring this news to people because he wanted to present the Colossians, and we are to be presented pure, holy. Therefore, there's a few things you've got to get rid of, and you've got to set your heart on. He wants everyone to be holy and mature and wise. He wants every one of us to bear fruit in every good work, to live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing Jesus in every way. And you will need great endurance for this, and you will need patience, because it's a lifelong process. And verse 23 was, don't let appearances fool you. All these rules and regulations, they don't accomplish what is necessary, because what is necessary is to restrain sensual indulgence. They just don't cut it. But that's the way of a culture. Let's not restrain sensual indulgence. Let's go full speed ahead. We don't want a governor on our heart. We want to go whatever we want to go after. Don't take away my fun. I can do whatever I want. I can be whatever I want. God says, no, it hurts you. You don't realize it many times at the beginning when you go after sensual indulgence. And these regulations won't help you cross the finish line. It's all about Jesus. 
It's about the work on the cross, the victory on the cross, the resurrection. And Jesus is to be the center of our life so that we do not gratify the sinful nature. So let's go into chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Paul's putting them in their proper position. You are raised with Christ. Set your hearts then on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Previously in chapter 2, verse 20, he said, since you've died with Christ, you no longer belong to a religion of of regulations, but now you not have just died with Christ, you are raised with Christ. You're raised with Christ. So set your heart on things above. That's how you restrain sensual intelligence. Set your mind on things above. It's about your thought life. It's what you feed your mind, what you feed your heart. The point Paul is making is that our attitudes are determined by the realities from above rather than from below. The starting point for your Christian life, my Christian life, is the realization that Christ's resurrection is what really matters. That's the religion that we jump into. Jesus pointed this out in Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21, this idea of setting your mind and your heart above. He says, don't store your treasures up on earth. That's where moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Set your mind on the things above. It'll change how you act. Mark 8, 31 to 33 here, Peter rebuked Jesus when Jesus spoke about, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to be raised in the third day. And Peter said, no, that's not going to happen, Jesus. (laughs) He tried to set Jesus straight. But Jesus had his mind set where? In heaven. Not on earthy things. And he said the same to Peter. He says says this to Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God. You You do not have your mind and your heart set on things above. They're on this earth. Just survival is the most important thing for you. Guess what? God's will. Things above are what's most important. You you have mere human concerns, Peter. That's how you're living your life, just on the human concerns. Peter's failure was a failure to take on the heavenly point of view. Christ has been raised from the dead. That's everything. So identification with Christ means that we are dead to the world, to its principalities and its powers. He said that in chapter 2. And then we go after Christ. We live in the resurrection now. I've said that over and over, over the years, that the resurrection isn't just about one day. It's now. We are not resurrected physically. We still live in this world, and the world battles against our soul. And we have battles and temptations, and that's why we have need for instruction like this. Because I don't know what your week was like, but it's a battle to set our heart and our mind on the things above. But we have a new set of values. Christ reigns. 
And to follow Jesus takes on a whole new perspective. What does he have to say about the matter? And so in going through these verses now, I want to publicly thank Dr. Scott McKnight, (laughs) Dr. N.T. Wright, James Dunn, a few others who have helped me come together with these thoughts. There's not a whole lot of originality here except maybe some of the delivery. I'm just going with what the experts say, just being honest with you. So, let me read verse 5. Since you've died with Christ, we've heard, learned that already, put to death whatever belongs to this earthly nature that you have. And he lists things. Number one, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. I'm just going to go through this list a little bit. Sexual sins, not just outward acts, but impulses that underlie those acts, the lusts it mentions. Evil desires. Now, I'm not a professional counselor. We have good professional counselors in our church, and I recommend you want someone to talk to about this kind of stuff, talk to a counselor. And in counseling terms, one would say that to change a behavior, a person ultimately has to deal with the inner dialogue and the patterns of thought that he or she has set up for the sinful act. That's, that act of sexual immorality is a fruit of what's going on in here. That's what Jesus says. And that's what a counselor can help you with. What's going on in your life? What traumas have you experienced? Et cetera, et cetera. Very important. Deal with the heart. So in the sexual context of the Roman Empire, it is no surprise that Paul begins with sexual immorality. That was what they lived in in their culture. They had religions of sex. They had fertility gods. They had temple prostitutes. It was a sex-craved world, much like ours today. You can't go anywhere without having something that tries to get your attention towards sex. So the word here for sexual immorality is pornoneo, of course, where we get our term porn or pornography. It's a sweeping generalization, this term, of any kind of sexual immorality. And for the Jew, for Paul, there was an established list of those sins. You could go to Leviticus 18, I won't read them all out, you can read them out. But it has no, it, it, it looks at every possibility of what you could do with your body for sex. And says, this is not the life. These are not the indulgences to go after. Every possibility is listed in Leviticus 8. And the conclusion here, proper sexual morality is sex between one man, one woman in a covenant marriage. That's it. That's what Paul's driving at. That hasn't changed. Our world does not want us to believe that. They make fun of that. They'll have a movie called The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and the guy's totally mocked. I say, that's the power of God. That's not something to mock. So there's a line. Paul's putting a line here. It's a very stringent line. It's not a popular line. All sexual morality is off the books. Now, everyone has a line. The people that might judge you for being so stringent, they have a line. They probably wouldn't want their spouse having an affair. They've drawn a line somewhere. They might not want their spouse looking at pornography. They've drawn a line. The world does have a line. It's just on a vast spectrum. And Paul's saying, here's the deal. 
God created sex. This is what it's for. It's not to play with. It isn't recreation. It's purposeful. And Paul says to the people in Corinth, this is what you once were. You acted like the Roman Empire wanted you to act, but now you're washed and you're sanctified and you're justified in the name of Jesus. Amen. So that's sexual immorality. Much more could be said in another context. We do have kids in middle school here. So I do want to be a little careful how far we go with this. But that's the line Paul's getting at. It's not recreational. Cannot be part of the Christian life. Then it gets into impurity and lust, evil desires, greed. Impurity, again, probably means sexual sins. Again, it's sins in the heart, lusting in the heart. Jesus said, if you lust after somebody, you've committed adultery in your heart. So Paul's not making anything up here. (laughs) These are the very words of Jesus that he's connected to. So watching sexual morality would be wrong. Reading it would be wrong. It's not an exaggeration to say that Jewish Christian sexual ethics were radically countercultural to the sexual ethics in the Roman Empire. And Paul just goes after it. People, you're different. You're not to act like the Romans do. Don't do in Rome as the Romans do. It'll kill you. It's a dangerous path to go down. Last week I talked about David. Because Paul connects here greed. David was greedy. He wanted wanted more sex. He wanted more wives. He was greedy. And Paul says this is even idolatry. And David accomplished this entire list over a couple of weeks. He hit the trifecta, the grand slam on this with what he did with Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband. And it says it was evil in the eyes of God. Okay, verse 6 and 7. But now you must rid yourselves, sorry, verse uh, 6 and 7. Because of these, all these things I've listed, and it's not an exhaustive list, but it's clear enough, I hope, for you to see what Paul's getting at and what Jesus got at. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but all things are new. God is making beautiful things. The wrath of God is coming because of these things. So there's three premises upon which Paul has built these statements. Number one, God's wrath is against these sins. You need to know that. These people have been converted from these sins. And number three, the inclusive body of Christ requires an alternative kind of moral fellowship. This is not how we treat each other. This is not how we treat our sisters in Christ. It's not how we treat our brothers in Christ. There will be more lists coming up later on. The Bible's language needs to be respected for what it says here. God will undo evil at the final judgment by destroying it. God's wrath is coming. 
It will destroy all these things, and it will reward goodness by establishing it. God's wrath is a good thing. Justice will roll. That's what it is. We all want justice. God's wrath must be connected to the jealousy that he has for us. He wants us to have no one else but him. To not go after idols of sex and greed and list can go on. But God's wrath is also connected to a system of cause and effect that God has written into the fabric of this world. Sometimes God's wrath is just the consequences. Being in the muck and the mire, that's a consequence. You might be able to think of some consequences of your own. It wasn't kind of God's wrath objectively coming on you, but he has set up a system here. When you go against his laws, things happen. But justice will roll one day. Evil will be done with. So you look at things going on in the Ukraine. What kind of justice is this? Well, we do what we can. But one day, justice will roll. So Paul appeals to God's character and a system of judgment. God hates evil. And what the Colossians were doing in their former life was going to be destroyed and judged by God. Wrath is not reduced to God's personal vindictiveness, but instead wrath is God's way of eliminating all that opposes his will. And we should be happy about that. It's a great truth that God is going to set things right. All that opposes him will be gone and destroyed. It'll be the proper sentence. God's wrath is coming upon these sins, so therefore you need to put them to death and lay them aside. Verse 8 and 9, read that. So we've got these kind of obvious bodily sins Sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. Then he says, because of these, God's wrath is coming, just so you're clear. I mean, this is serious stuff, people. And then he goes another list here. But you also must get rid of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and don't lie to each other. There's another list, not exhaustive, but an interesting list. Verbal behaviors, you could call them. Um, Scott McKnight calls them sins of disunity. This is what will disrupt our church. These kinds of things. Verbal behavior that destroys community. And it starts with an outburst of anger. Not a feeling of anger. Feeling angry is not necessarily sin. But letting it pour out and verbalizing it on people or in actions. That's wrong. He is concerned about speech that destroys the unity of the church. I've been here 20 years. I think we're not doing too bad. There's not been a major schism here because of people freaking out like this. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. Chapter 3 in James talks about controlling the tongue. He says, you can't praise God and curse a human being with the same tongue. Come on, this can't be. Fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? Nonsense. 
Can a fig tree produce olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? Stop thinking like this. Get rid of rage and anger. I'm going to say one word, two words, and you'll have a picture in your mind immediately. Road rage. Got a picture of it? Read on news this morning, the website I go to. I go to a combination of CNN and Fox News. <laughs> and then find the middle of those two things. That's kind of how I try to do my news life. A woman shot another woman in a parking lot in South Carolina, not where we just were. <laughs> just didn't like what was going on in the parking lot. Shot her in the back. My son, Bennett, I'm going to say his name so you don't wonder which son it is. God, and, and this is his testimony. If he was to come up front, he, he would say he's had in the past the odd rage issue. <laughs> he's like his dad, okay? I like to talk while I drive. So Bennett has, uh, he drives the Toyota Tundra, gets pretty tough fuel economy, so he's figured out that he now can save six bucks to Abbotsford and back if he goes 95 kilometers an hour. So that in itself is quite amazing to go 95, but everyone else is, wants to go faster. And so up beside him came a construction truck, and I guess there had been a bit of road rage going on between the construction truck the guy was, I won't, I won't give the name of the company. Let's call him Sunshine Carpentry. <laughs> and uh, he was tailgating the car in front of him, going about 110 like this much, like NASCAR. He was like right here. Now, Bennett in the past might have decided to try to show the guy a lesson, but you know what Bennett did? He phoned the number on the truck. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> The guy answers it. Ben was a bit surprised that it actually was the person driving. <laughs> he was hoping it was the boss of the guy. So here's Ben's loving words. I hope your carpentry is better than your driving habits. <laughs> yeah, you have to talk to Bennett afterwards how the rest of the conversation went. But you know, it's not a bad way to handle it, maybe. But rage, it's huge in our culture. The word malice means to be mean-spirited, to have a vicious attitude towards somebody. Filthy language. I don't think I need to tell you what that's about. There's always warnings on every movie you want to watch on Netflix that there's going to be filthy language coming up. Uncultured, vulgar, obscene, lying is just bearing false witness, having deceit in communication. And community is important, Paul says, get rid of all this stuff. Verse 10 and 11, our last two verses. And so, here you go. Don't do these things. Don't do this stupid stuff. Don't believe these silly things. This is how you're supposed to act, and this is why. You need to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What does this mean? Here it is. 
Sin brought us all into the same family. And Jesus brings us also into a family, the same family. That's what he's saying. We're all one here. Worldly distinctions don't matter. We're all getting recreated in the image of Christ, who himself is the image of God. All that matters is Christ and our becoming like him. He lives in believers. We'll get into the slave-master thing in a couple of weeks because it comes up here. But he says, this is the church. There's no distinctions. None. The old points us back to the old identity and the sins of desire and disunity. Put on the new self, the new family, the new creation. Shed the old garments. Put on some new white ones. Interesting depiction because wardrobes are important in Roman culture. Let you know who was what and who's who. Our identity, our worth has a new context. You're a new human. That's the most important thing about you. Christ is all and is in all. Identity emerges not from your ethnicity, your heritage, or your status, but from Christ. The old self, the old clothes, our ethnic disunity, ritual disunity, socioeconomic hierarchies, cultural disunities, and gender domination. This is not how the church works at all. That's the old regime. That's the old stuff. And all these different names here, Scythian, that, basically, you know, sometimes we'll call somebody, you know, that's the swamp people, hillbillies. They're from Woolerton, you know, if you're from Dog River, that kind of thing. No, we're all one. Doesn't matter where, doesn't matter what your address is. And that's a beautiful truth. I don't know if you knew that in the Revelation. You two wrote a great song. It says, the streets have no name in heaven because that's how we judge socioeconomic status in many ways. What's your address? Where do you live? Hey, in heaven, the streets have no name. We're all one. We're all on the same street, living in the same kind of house. I'll ask the band to come on up and we'll finish with a couple songs. Our world is full to the brim with barriers of one kind and another. And our life is scarred by the animosities cherished by one side against the other. So Paul is saying here it's in Christ. Color barriers, class distinctions, national and cultural divisions, political and sectarian partisanship. This stuff all must go by the wayside because Christ is all. He is in all. We are in Christ. This is where we set our hearts and minds in these kinds of truths in the heavenly realms. And so we pray, we live out your will, your heavenly will, so that our minds on heaven would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Set your hearts, people. Gary, set your heart. Set your mind on things above.